Welcome back to Between the Levees. I'm joined today by Captain Royce Legg, who's been with Moran Towing for a couple of years and uh, has been at this in this industry for three decades, a little bit over that. So I've uh, been waiting on this for a little while to have this conversation. Captain Royce Legg, thank you for joining me. No problem. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, you've seen this show a few times. You know how it begins, sir. Please tell me, where were you born? I was born in uh, 1972 in Rota, Spain, NAS Rota, Naval Air Station Rota. And uh, my father was, of course, in the Navy. What did he do in the Navy? He was an uh, aviation boatswain's mate, which are the, the guys with the yellow shirts in front of the airplanes and the aircraft carriers. Okay. How uh, often was he uh, out at sea when you were growing up? Uh, I mean, that's... Um, The year I was born was his one of his very first years shoreside. Before that, uh, he was probably 18 years in the Navy, almost always gone. Okay. And what did he do shoreside? Uh, he tried shore patrol for a little while, and he, he didn't enjoy that at all. And he went kind of into administration, and then he went back to the fleet as an instructor for about four more years. How long were you in Spain? <clears throat> Uh, we were, we lived there till right before my right after my fourth birthday, and uh, we moved back stateside to uh, Southern California till I was about seven, and then we moved to Louisiana. And that was all following his career. Uh, yeah, so um, he uh, he's from uh, was Dodge City, Kansas originally, and him and his father evidently didn't have a a very good relationship. So he lied about his age. He joined the Navy when he was only like 16 to get out of town. And um, he met my mother at uh, down in South Texas, the Victoria Air Station. They were doing training with new pilots and uh, deck familiarization and stuff like that. And they met at a USO dance when he was 18. And they were married a year later. So the first, like I said, 18 years, I guess, he was mostly... Fleet side and deployed a lot of time in Vietnam. Uh, before I was born, I've got a a brother that's eleven years older than me, and a sister that's ten years older. And um, the the gap between my sister's birthday and my birthday is almost exclusively spent in the South Pacific during Vietnam. Where are your siblings today? Um, we all live actually. We live real close together. My sister lives just like three blocks from me in in Gramercy still, and my brother lives in uh, Sorrento, uh, Prairieville. I'm sorry, he lives in Prairieville. Okay. So, uh, what do they do? Did they go into the maritime industry or anything? My brother um, actually is the one who got me on the boat in 1991. He was here at the uh, the former company uh, as an uh, onboard engineer, and they were short of deckhands and. Um, the sort of a backstory I, I signed up to join the navy in high school in uh, what they call the delayed entry program <clears throat> and by the time i got there um the the navy and i figured out we weren't going to be a good fit so i was gonna i was gonna come home and uh i shipped home on uh april 9th 1991 and he picked me up at the airport about eight o'clock that night and he took me straight to a tugboat eight o'clock the next morning well, if I may, is there a story there? What happened with the Navy? Uh, no, really just typical Gen X teen angst. Just wasn't going to work out. Gotcha. What about your sister? What does she do? Uh, my sister is now a uh, business advisor. She works for um, a contractor for the state school board system. 
And uh, I'm not exactly what she does in detail, but it's a consulting firm that they have contracted with the uh, Board of Education, State of Louisiana. She's a part-time teacher sometimes. She fills in with that. And she, um, I'm not exactly sure what she, uh, what she consults. That's no problem. Uh, are your parents still alive? No. All right. well, how, when did uh, your father retire? Um, he retired in 1976, late 76. And um, while he was in the Navy, he, uh, he did uh, what they call, uh, I think it's called uh, college at sea or something like that. He did college credit hours while he was on board the ships. And by the time he'd finished like almost 22 years in the Navy, he had uh, a degree in mechanical engineering, uh, hydraulics and process, steam process. And he went straight to work for Exxon almost immediately, right up, as soon as he retired. So we, we lived near Long Beach, the, the former, I, I guess it's still there, the big Exxon refinery in Long Beach. <clears throat> and in, in uh, late 78, Exxon bought in as, uh, I guess, a silent partner of the old Good Hope refinery in Norco years and years ago. And they were going to do the uh, management and staffing. They asked for volunteers to move to Louisiana to uh, be plant managers and shift managers and stuff like that. So he came over as the uh, engineering manager for the rebuild. And um, that was, I think, November of 78, he came over. Uh, familiarization with the company, finding a house and all that stuff. And we moved at the end of the school year. So like May of 79, we all drove over from, from San Diego to, uh, to Convent, Louisiana is where we ended up living. Bit of a change there. Uh, how was that, uh, that transition? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It was, it was great because for what we had thought was going to be the first time we were going to be settled without having to move again. And, stuff like that for a long time. And um, the, the reason he decided to take the job is because, like I said, his family's from Dodge City, Kansas originally. And my mother's family is from Victoria, Corpus Christi. And it would have been the first time in over 20 years that they were both with, within less than a day's drive of home. So like, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. We'll be close to home. We have time for, you know, holidays and stuff like that. And uh, very unfortunately, he, he passed away in November that year, 1979, uh, with a, uh, I guess you call it a hunting accident, I guess. Hmm. Yeah. Sorry to hear that. How old were you? I was seven. Man, sorry to hear that. Yeah. Uh, did your mother work prior to his death and after? No, afterwards, yes. But before, no, she never, she never had a job until he passed away. What did she do after he passed? Oh, man, at first it was just um, sort of whatever she can do um, to make ends meet. And um, through a, a, an arduous life and, and career, she ended up as a senior purchasing agent for Trans-American Refining at the same refinery, actually, Good Hope, uh, years and years later. And she ended up retiring. It became Valero Refining by the time she retired, but she was a senior buyer for the refinery. Okay. Well, good for her. Yeah. Uh, do you have any interesting memories of Spain or California? Uh, Spain? I, I don't. I, the family's got tons of stories, but I don't remember any of it, actually. Um, the 
craziest thing, I guess, would be like when we first moved back stateside, I had to go take remedial English to get into kindergarten because I didn't speak, I spoke more fluent Spanish than I did English because we had a, um, a housekeeper, a husband and wife, a housekeeper and a gardener. And everywhere they went, they would just throw me in like a little backpack papoose thing. And they would, she would, she would like read like nursery tales to me and sing lullabies to me, everything in Spanish. So I just started corresponding with her and her husband. And my mother spoke Spanish because she grew up in South Texas. And um, so, yeah, I had learned remedial English to get into kindergarten. So I, I don't remember that either, but it, like, yeah, that's like one of the, the stories my parents used to like to tell. Sure. What about California? Which with three years, I think you said. <clears throat> California was fun from what I remember. Uh, most of the time in California, he, when I was alive, when he was alive and I was with him, uh, the few, the, just a couple of years with him before he passed away. Uh, since he was in the Navy, we had all the, uh, like we spent almost every weekend in Disneyland because it was like family passes for the Navy were like $4 and stuff like that. So it was pretty much like our daycare was, was Disneyland. Yeah, they would just drop us off and come back and get us in the afternoon. We just run rampant in Disneyland. That was kind of neat. Uh, man, what else was happening? We well, we got to see. Uh, I think it was 1977 or 78. Uh, the San Diego Padres and the Oakland A's had a pennant race. That was kind of neat. We got to see that. It was like a, a three-game homestand for the Padres back in the day with Catfish Hunter and all those guys, and that was kind of cool. Tell me about growing up in Convent. I guess through the 80s. Convent. Um, it was really unique for us to, to settle in, especially from the West Coast, sort of an independent family, right? A military family moves around a lot <clears throat> to a place where it's notoriously family oriented. Like the, the, the names of the streets on River Road are Sheck Snyder and, and Bourgeois and Becknell and, and Hotard and like the, the grandfather owns the first house and the, the oldest son owns the next house. And like, that was so alien to us that the entire families will live and connect that closely. That was, that was sort of a system shock. It took us a little while to get used to. And um, it was fun though, right? Like I, I, I missed the house in convent. I missed living there. It was um, so much room, so much, it was just wide open. And <clears throat> growing up in the eighties versus growing up now is like totally different. Like, you know, the, the whole latchkey kid thing, you know, parents work and you just, whatever run rampant as long as you're inside before like eight o'clock at night and you get your homework done so that was um that was always great like the whole thing was great um the friends we made uh one of the friends i made when i was in elementary school we still talk and uh he's a uh, um he grew up just probably half a mile up the road from where i lived and we didn't know each other when we were very very young but we met each other later on and didn't realize, like we knew, we, we saw each other before, but we didn't realize like how close we lived to each other until we really started hanging out. Um, but Convent's a very cool place, man. It's such an old historic place for some, for like South Louisiana, there's so much stuff to it. The, the, the plantations, um, there's this huge uh, Catholic retreat called Manresa right on College Point. It's, one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen is gorgeous. They've got a, a, a walkway out to the, uh, to the levee and to the battery, which is lined with trees. And there's like 
benches for meditation out on the riverbank and all that kind of stuff is really neat. Um, we didn't have any like rules when we were that young and back then. So go-karts and dirt bikes and fist fights and like we didn't even if you caught us with like more than a pair of shorts on, you were lucky to see us. You know what I mean? Like like barefoot, no shirt all day long, every day, until we had to get on a school bus. And then um yeah, it was great. Common's great. I like I like um I like all the stuff we ended up finding in Louisiana compared to where we had been before. And I don't have a, a, a very tight recollection of what we had before, but I don't know. I couldn't imagine growing up anywhere else. Yeah. Sure. Well, tell me about school and I guess extracurriculars aside from hanging out with friends. Um, no, I didn't have anything really extracurricular. School was just like completely average. Um, I tested really early in the gifted and talented program and it, um, the resources to follow up on that from the school side were sort of limited. The, like back in the day, it was like accelerated reader or science fair, stuff like that. And, um, it was, it felt like, it, like a lot of wasted time and I, I lost interest in school, like pretty early on. And, you know, one of the things like going back to growing up, in convent and then ties into school too when my father passed away my brother was 18 and my sister was 17 we um we drove to dashi to kansas for his funeral we came back i guess it was like the second week of december in 79 and my brother went straight to the school board he quit school went to the school board office took his ged and passed it the same day and like two days later he was outbound to uh, san diego for the navy he just left like it was, it was a lot for all of us to deal with. And that's how he, um, that was his first step in his process. And then my sister at the end of the school year, she transferred to a, a school in a junior college near Corpus Christi. So we went from like this typical American nuclear family of two parents and 2.7 kids to just me and my mother in a, in a matter of months. And it was um, looking and looking back at it now, like it explains so much about me that I didn't realize was going on because I was so young. Um, but um, without, with my mother having to work more than one job, pretty much free reign to come and go when I wanted to, without any kind of like rigid format to, to keep me in line, uh, like I lost interest in school so fast. And to, it was bad. Like it was, it was pretty bad. Like I, I, there's a lot of times I understood what the curriculum was better than the teachers were trying to teach us. And it was, it, it, all of it just added up to me just totally losing interest in school. Was college ever in the cards for you? No, I didn't, I didn't think it was. I had no aspirations for college. Um, that's why I was going to join the Navy because that was sort of family history, right? The, my father, his youngest brother, uh, there was some uncles that I've like way out on the periphery of my existence that I, I, I know their family, but I've only met them like once when I was really, really young. Uh, the Navy was always kind of in my dad's side of the family. So I thought that was going to be the thing like to, to, to fall in line with the family tradition. And I just, I just had too much rebel, I guess. It just wasn't going to work. But yeah, so so instead of college, I thought I was going to be a military kid, I mean, like enlisted 
for a while and it just wasn't it didn't work so, uh, so yeah you couldn't uh, come to terms with the navy and you went straight to work you said uh, your brother got you out there so let's talk about your brother you said he went straight to the navy after your father passed yeah and walk me through as you can of his his career into tow boats and and forward uh so he went uh navy um i guess technically it was 1980 uh, he was out by 86 he did six years he was a sonar technician on an anti-submarine ASW fleet out of Jacksonville. Uh, he was the sonar operator in a P-3 Orion and a couple of different helicopters on the ships. And uh, when he got out, he kind of made his way around here and there, um, odd jobs and worked at a refinery as a security guard, did some club bouncing at nightclubs and stuff like that. And then uh, I'm not even sure exactly who talked him into coming to the tugboats. Um, but that's where he was, and uh, he started out as a deckhand. Uh, so the, the company I work at now, right, Moran, um, back in uh, 07, they kind of bought up a few smaller operators on the East Coast, and then they found the company that I worked at as a formerly River Parishes Company Incorporated, uh, Rivco. So he was working for, the, for, for Rivco and that family, and... Um, he made his way, obviously, from deck to engineering. And then uh, when I got hired on, um, just within, a, I'd say, a few short years, he was uh, shoreside as a port engineer. And he worked port engineer with the company until uh, 2008. And then uh, there was a reduction in workforce and a restructuring and stuff like that. And um, The spreadsheet said there was too many shoreside, too much shoreside support for a fleet of only six boats. So his number was the one that was drawn. And uh, he ended up going to work for, give me a second, J and J uh, Marine down on Laplace. And um, that was a contract to a company for a CGB fleeting. And now he works for Cooper Consolidated as a Support engineer, port side engineer. I mean, not shore side engineer. Assigned to a certain fleet, or what was he doing now? Uh, I'm not sure how they're structured, but he's he's in uh, Destrehan at their uh, their office down in Destrehan or their um, Riverside office down there. So yeah, that's where he's at. He does a lot of the uh, purchasing and logistics for him now. Okay. He he does very little wrench turning now. Yeah. Well, back to you. So April 91, yeah. you, you, you come knocking on the door to get on a boat. Tell me about onboarding. Tell me about the first time you step out there. I mean, it was um, said April 10th, 91, met at the office for crew change. They introduced me to a few people and told me who I was going to be working with. Uh, first captain I worked with, is, uh, his last name is Fauché. And um, we went out and we got on board the boat. We were at... Uh, used to call it T-Bone, Shell T-Bone up in Geismer. And we had to cross the dock and climb down the dock face to get to the tug. Like, there was, it was so wild back then. Uh, and uh, literally got off the airplane the night before, and all I had with me was this, uh, the Navy calls it a ditty bag. It's like a little small duffel bag, and it had what was my, my two sets of civilian clothes, the one I flew out in, the one that let me buy on the way home, and all my PT gear, and then a shaving kit, like, a, you know, little sundries and such so he's like perfect you don't even have to unpack your bag we'll just you, everything you have is exactly what you need so 
went out there and um it was it was it was awesome man it was so cool to see something that i'd never even considered before to like to go from i have no idea what what is going to happen tomorrow to like having that the next morning was excellent it was so beneficial obviously 32 years later but it was um it was pretty wild and uh, when i when i did get home after work the next week none of my friends knew i was coming home they all thought i was still in san diego so to to come out of that with the only guy in the group with a job now it was pretty neat so supported some pretty poor habits for all my friends for a couple of years in decades pay that was the only one with a job <laughs> yeah uh onboarding didn't really happen it was just like uh I mean, this is where you're going to sleep. This is how you start the engine. You're up at midnight. You don't go to bed till noon. And you just do what you're told pretty much what we ask you to do. And uh, it was great. It was, a, it was a good way to learn, man. It was so, it's such a different way. Now there's a lot of, um, you know, written orientations and uh, vessel orientations and pre-boarding uh, safety training and, and all these other kind of things. And it's all necessary. It's all great stuff. But compared to what it was in 91, it was, it was pretty neat. It was a great experience. What kind of hitch were you working and where were y'all running? <clears throat> so we ran, um, the boat I was on, we worked uh, from Burnside to Baton Rouge, was generally sort of our area of dispatch. And we worked seven days on and seven off on a Wednesday crew change. And uh, ended up working with Captain Fauché for about <coughs> four months. And then he asked me, maybe not even four, and then he asked me to work over on another boat instead of going home one time. And so I ended up working on a boat. That first boat was called the Agraville. The second boat was called the Baton Rouge. And they were both, oh, man, I don't know, 85 by 20 single screw tugs, like really cool boats, old boats that, um, it was, it was, they were great boats. But anyway, uh, the, the second boat I ended up working on, I stayed on that boat for... Uh, about eight weeks total and I worked with both captains and both of them went to the office and asked if I could get stationed on their tug with them and I didn't know that and so there was kind of a, a back and forth about which captain I was gonna was gonna get the new guy and I ended up with a fellow named Posey Wayne Posey and um he was it's funny how things work out he was probably the exact person I needed right then for everything, not just the career wise, like without a um, without a father figure going for fourteen years without a father figure, or, or twelve years without one, to have him as uh, a captain, a boss, and a mentor was probably the greatest thing that's happened in my, in my career. Was working with Captain Posey. Tell me a little bit more about that. Uh, he was a, a super, super straightforward, no nonsense kind of guy. He's from, uh, he grew up originally in uh, the north side of Baton Rouge near Plank Road and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> and his family was always into uh, horses and, and uh, cattle ranching and stuff like that up before, when that was still sort of a thing around North Baton Rouge. And um, he just kind of had that cowboy attitude, even when it came to tugboat. Uh, he never told a pilot, no, like no matter what they asked him to do with the tug, he was going to do it. And um, he was, our bosses used to complain that he was such a throttle jockey on the tugs. He was tough on the tugs. 
but he got it done, man. It was, it was impressive. I had no idea what it was when I was a deckhand, but when I started learning how to run a boat, I'm like, holy shit, that's what he, oh my God, man. And, and he made it look so effortless. Like that was the greatest thing, but his, his attitude and his personality, like I said, it was probably the most perfect and beneficial thing right when I needed it the most. And uh, like his, his two favorite things to tell us, and I, well, the two things I remember the most that he told us, like, um, we had this one job, it was pretty rough. The weather was not cooperating. It was, you know, probably after midnight, pitch black. And it was, it was getting him, man. He pretty much had his ass handed to him. And I'd never seen that before. And after we were tied off and we kind of settled down and it was like, damn, Captain, like that was, that was pretty wild. And he goes, look, man, if you're not learning something new every week, you're really not doing your job out here. Like, like he had no, it wasn't embarrassing or anything to him that he just learned something on his 32nd year doing it. And he was, he was always pretty humble about that. Like to be a good teacher, you have to be a good student, no matter how far you're on your progress. And um, that was something I, I, to this day is like weekly. When I start training people, it's like, nobody's perfect. You're not going to get in the first shot. Like give it time. You're going to see me mess up in a couple of weeks. Just he catches all of us, but that's how we learn. That's how we, sh we like hone the tools, right? And then uh, the second thing he said, I don't even remember what started the conversation, uh, but he looked at me one day and he's like, you know what? You don't have to be a dumbass every day. Like, what? what? It's like, just get your head out of your ass and do what I'm asking you to do. I've, I've done all this before you were even born. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like, you, like just, just stop being dumb for a minute. You know, and I'm like, God damn it. I was mad, but an hour later, I'm like, damn, that's some good stuff. That's, that's the best stuff ever. So yeah, yeah. that's like, that's my new bumper sticker for life is you don't have to be a dumbass today. Yeah. It's obviously a choice, you know, more people need to hear that these days, I think, but, uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah. All right. So you said, uh, the Iberville and the Baton Rouge were single screws. Yes. What, what kind of horsepower? Uh, on, on the radio, 1800. <laughs> In actuality, about 1,400, 1,300 horsepower. Okay. Uh, EMD, 567, 16 cylinders. Old, old Lufkin, like, three-to-one gearboxes and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, that was, that was typical, though, back in the day. Everybody kind of touted their horsepower, even though it wasn't really there. Yeah. Well, what kind of uh, tow were y'all moving? Uh, we moved ships. We're, we just do ship docking the entire time. It was just ship docking. Okay. Uh, that's yeah. almost the entirety of my career has been ship docking. Okay. Yeah. I don't have really any experience or, or reference on that. Tell me about, uh, I guess, landing your first ship. Well, the attempted one was just completely horrible. And Wayne had to just push me out of the way and, and take over the boat. And it was actually looking back as one of the easiest jobs we could have tried to do first. And I was just like, really wound up and like, the I don't know where my focus was at. It just wasn't on like well, my hand and my head were they're just total miscommunication. I was way overthinking it for no reason and all this other stuff. He's like, oh man, he just grabbed me by the shoulder and just pushed me out of the way. And uh he got the job done and we sat down and we talked for about an hour and I, that might have been the day he told me I didn't have to be a dumbass actually. Uh but um 
the first one, I don't even remember if I actually, I don't think I can actually remember the first one I, I actually got done properly, like without him having to help. Uh, you know, when, back in the day, there, there was no 12-hour rule for, for captains and mates, and there was no, um, we didn't even have mates. It was an, a captain, an engineer, and a deckhand. <clears throat> so if the boat got dispatched, we just kept running. So one of the things we all did was learn how to at least steer the boat so the captain can take a break, go get some food, take a shower or something. So we all learned that really, really, really early on. And, um, you know, it was, it was sort of a, a would cut the points, you know, upriver, coming down river, you take the bend, stuff like that, and, you know, slow down for the work boats and, and you know, make as much time as you can, best speed as you can otherwise. And if anybody calls you, don't say anything because I didn't know what passing arrangements were. You know, so I don't want to say the wrong thing and get everybody in trouble. So he's like, just stay on the same line you're on now and don't say anything on the radio. And he'd come back up like 30 minutes later. And so we all learned how, sort of how to handle the boat. And the first thing they used to teach us was, was like actually stopping the tug and tying it off. Because <clears throat> that's actually, it's harder to stop a boat, especially a single screw that's built like that, like a, a, a model bow conventional where that's not squared off to move barges. A single screw like that is, um, that's a whole nother skill to 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 lay one into a dock or something like that and to to be able to bump the throttle just enough without outrunning your position or putting your deck hands hands in jeopardy because he's trying to get the line out. So that's what they, they try to teach us first was, was actually tying the boat off. And when you when you you see the the finesse it takes to do that safely, then like catching a ship at, at eight knots is not that bad. It's it's it can be, but it's not. Like most times, it's not. Um, I think my first job was probably up at Capline St. James because that's where we were staying for a long time. Uh, we used to have like a, a job with like three tugs. <clears throat> the first tug would go in the bow, the second tug would be midship, and the third tug would be under the quarter somewhere. And the third tug would just get hammered because the other two tugs make their run, so they got their wake pushing and then all the wheel wash from the other two tugs coming down. And uh, so that was always kind of a learning curve. The, the three tug jobs was probably the, the worst thing we had to, to deal with when we were learning. And then, you know, a lot of stuff with boats, um, you, you're kind of controlling inertia, like the, the mass in motion underway and all that kind of stuff. And one of the tricks is to not fight. You, you, you let it run its course for a couple of seconds at a time. So if you get into somebody else's wheel wash, and it wants to, uh, say, push it towards the ship. If you throw, like, opposite rudder, by the time you break through and the wheel wash hits something else on the boat, like another part of the boat underwater, and you put the, the opposing rudder, it's just going to stand up and turn instantly, like, 180 degrees away. And it's it's super counterintuitive to not want to, like, if it feels like the boat's going to slam into something, you know, like, ride it out, it's, it, that's one of the hardest things to teach is, like, the... Um, the, the understanding of, of relative motion and drift, let the boat drift in or, or let its weight carry it past that and stuff like that. And a lot of guys tend to fight the machine when they first start learning. And it always ends up um, poorly. Almost all, almost always ends up poorly. Well, what is the process of catching a ship? Are they dropping lines to you? You sending lines to them? And I mean, are you tying them off to anchor buoys and stuff like that? So when we started, when I started, uh, the boats 
Uh, a 4,000 horsepower boat was a huge boat when I started out. Most of them were about 1,800 horsepower. Maybe you might get lucky and get 2,000, 2,200. Uh, so it's a single screw, so you don't really have the ability to, to, to twist engines or pin in. You have to make it all happen with wheel and rudder. Um, and then the we would lash up to the ships, but they would drop, uh, some of them would drop a messenger to us, but most of the time we had to throw a heaving line from the deck of the boat up to the rail of the ship, which is a, a weighted like a monkey's fist on a real thin, long heaving line. And uh, the year I started, we were still using like inch and a quarter, inch and a half steel cables to send up to the ships. And then uh, we would take these things and it's, you end up lacing it from the fair lead to the quarter bit across the bow H bit to the other quarter bit. You just kind of run these really intricate sort of patterns to take up as much slack on the line as you can. And then uh, that's, that's once it's made up, you're, you're, you're kind of in it till the job's done. Um, the, to get the boat there, the process of getting the boat in there, uh, the first thing is always matching the speed of the ship. And when they used to teach us, like uh, we'd look out a wheelhouse window and we'd see where the, the fittings on the ship's deck were, the chocks and stuff. And you draw a line straight down and you find something in the hole, a, a, a blister of rust or a spot in the paint, or a, if you're lucky, it'll be like a plimsoll mark or a tug mark or something like that. And you use that for your reference and not up. Because if, if you're looking up, you have a tendency to, to veer into stuff. So we, we always give them a target eye level and we try to give them a window frame, keep it inside this frame and just close your distance, let it close itself. And again, that's one of those things that they, if they get uncomfortable for a split second and start fighting, it, it just takes forever to get back in and start over. And uh, keeping the guys confident is uh, is key to teaching that stuff. But um, yeah, so matching your speed, picking a target. And once the boat lays in there, depending on where the ship is going, because sometimes you, you'll have to make up when the ship is turning. So the bow tug, the, the ship will be approaching the tug, like the, the rate of closure is really fast on the bow, but on the stern, you're, you're still driving at it. You can't you can't get the boat to catch it because the ship's turning away from you. So there's just stuff like that. Um, nowadays, uh, with the new tugboats and the new winches and stuff like that, they usually have uh, a heavier messenger line that they, they drop to us. They don't want us throwing heaving lines up above. Because now we use these tractor tugs, Z-drives. <clears throat> and if you miss the throw and it goes over the side, like between the boat and the ship, if the heaving line throw goes in there, uh, there's, you know, 50-50 shot is going to get stuck in one of our own nozzles. We'll, we'll pull it, like, just render it right off the deck. And uh, so they don't have us to, uh, to throw heaving lines anymore. Right. Well, okay. So I see on your, uh, your LinkedIn profile, I mean, mate, boat operator, captain, dispatcher, ops manager. Let's walk through your career from, uh, I guess, your ascent from deckhand uh, up to the wheelhouse. And then did you spend some time shoreside? I did. Um, so uh, about two years in, I was engineering. Um, they asked me to move up to engineer. So I took a spot in the engine room. And I had a pretty good mistake, an error. We did a basic filter maintenance one night on an EMD. And uh, things have a mechanical fuel pump. And is uh, you take these secondary filters, they're just like big giant oil, spin on oil filter looking things. So we take these off, and if you take them off, uh, with there's a, a shutoff valve. You close this valve so the fuel doesn't run out while you've got your fuel filters off. 
So I swapped the filters out and I put new ones on. I forgot to open that return line valve and I ended up overpressuring the fuel system and it split a housing on a fuel filter while we were doing the job. So we just pumped fuel off the front of the motor into the bilge. <clears throat> the point engineer we had at the time, as soon as I found out what was happening, the deckhand woke me up at like three in the morning, four in the morning. And, I, and as soon as he opened the door, I'm like, oh my God, I left the valve closed. Like I knew exactly what it was, just the way he opened the door. Like I knew exactly what it was. I'm like, oh man. So I got down there and we were still working the boat. So it's not like we can shut the engine down and, and fix it. So we ended up pumping this fuel out into the bilge and then called the port engineer as soon as I could, like 4.35 in the morning. He's like, don't worry about it. I'll get out there on crew change. We'll, I'll come out with the guys because it was Tuesday night, of course. So uh, he comes out and um, I'm still covered in diesel trying to help him clean up. He's like, oh, no, man, go take a quick shower. Get out of here. I got this. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And by the time I left the boat, got in the, the carry-on back to the office, he had called the boss and, and told him I'd lost like thousands and thousands of gallons of fuel and like all this other stuff. So they they literally had my pink slip, <laughs> pink slip right next to my paycheck when I walked in the door. So <clears throat> that was in, I think December of 93 and uh, no, November. And then like uh, about three weeks later, I got on with uh, a launch service in, in Burnside, Crescent Ship Service. And uh, worked, uh, first on deck, then I went and got my first license there. So I got a hundred ton masters to run the crew boats out of Burnside Anchorage first. And uh, ran with those guys till about 90, that was 94 to 97. And in February 97, I really missed being on the tugboats. And um, I didn't think coming back over to, uh, to River Parishes was an option, just the way everything ended. So I called around the other companies and uh, EM Biso was hiring. So I went to work for EM Biso for a year and uh, moved up from deckhand to uh, mate over there. And uh, a lot of good experience there. The guy I worked with over there, colloquially known as a saltwater cunass. Um, uh, his last name was Brunet. And uh, we, were in, we ran an old twin screw boat and Man, he had done so much. He worked offshore before he came to EMB. So, so anything to do with towing, he was super comfortable and familiar with. And when the pilot should say, hey, man, we're going to do this and this, it's like, oh, bro, it'd just be easy if I put you on the hawser. So we were standing lines off the stern constantly with this guy. But I learned more about actual ship movement with him as much as Wayne, Captain Posey had taught me about handling the boat and, and not being a dumbass, Captain Brunet had taught me, like, this is what a boat can really do when you, when you, when you hone the tool and get to the finite part. So we would do a lot of hawser work and a lot of three-line work. So we had two lines spread off the bow and one off the stern. And that's probably the closest thing to, like, moving barges, I guess, in the makeup, sort of, that we might be familiar with. And that was really cool because with a twin screw, you can put the boat in a hard press. So if we're made up on the on the port quarter of a ship on three lines, we can put a hard press to port and we can walk the entire ship. It's slow, but one boat's doing all of it. We can get it out there. And um, so familiarity with hawser work and uh, actually utilizing a winch, I learned a lot from him in a year. And um, one of the other captains at the other company, River Parishes, decided to retire. And um, 
the family that owned the business, they, they found out from my brother that I was working for, for EMB. So, so they called and asked if I wanted to come back as a captain. So I came back to River Parish in 97. Uh, full-time captain. First boat was called the Ascension. Beautiful tug built in like 1918. It was an awesome tug. She was a great boat. Very quiet, very comfortable. Um, we ran that from uh, 97 to January of 2000. <clears throat> and in 2000, um, we ended up with a super complicated trade law thing uh, between the tugboat companies. And uh, there was some legal stuff run up against between the companies. And uh, River Parishes was on the, the losing end of that. So to stay viable, they had to like shut down boats. And um, since I was one of the newest ones brought in, I was one of the first ones let go. And coincidentally, at the exact same time, right here in uh, in Lutcher, right next to the Moran office, the Rifco office, uh, Port Ship Service, which is another crew boat operator from New Orleans, they had just opened a new outfit in. Uh, Grandview Anchorage, which is the exact same spot where I live now. So they were looking for people to help their operators get familiar with the area. So on my days off, I was working with these guys and I just ride along on the pilot boat explaining where things were between Kenner and, and Burnside and helping them, you know, pinpoint like ETAs and stuff like that, how long it's going to take to get deliveries up and stuff like that. So as soon as I got the word I was getting laid off again, I just went straight there and asked if, uh, if I can come on as an operator for them. And so I ran uh, boats with them for about a year and a half and helped them like uh, get the, it was all brand new for them, this area geographically. And then the launch stations, I don't know if you've been around them, they'll, they'll take like stores, ship stores, like all the supplies, food, welding supplies, plate steel, all that stuff. So we had a crane and a delivery boat and um, we had to kind of like refine the technique of unloading the trucks on the side of the levee and, and bring it down to the barge and all that. So it was pretty, it was it was good. It's always fun being on the on the come up of something new, and uh, to help refine the process. And uh, so we did all that. And about eighteen months into it, uh, one of the bosses from Port Ship Service, he was driving all the way up from Chalmette. He decided he wanted to go back to the office. So I kind of convinced him I needed to be the day guy. I needed to be the I needed to be the, the site manager for Port Ship Grandview. So I got to do that for about two and a half years. And um, in 04, the, uh, the restructuring for River Parishes worked out and they asked me to come back again. So I went back the second time, third time, I guess, and uh, ended up uh, in 2004 on a twin screw tug called the St. James. And um, I ran that until 2010. And then that's when the first Z drive was delivered. And uh, the first one came in in the end of 09. And um, I'd asked to go train. And um, the, the bosses had told me they had already chosen the guys they want on the tractor. They, we got our guys. It's not for you. Don't worry about it. It's, it's, it's not something you'll, you'll, like, it's not for you. Don't worry about it. You know, all right. <clears throat> so, of course, you know, the coconut telegraph runs what it does. So we hear about all these other guys, they got asked to go learn and train and stuff like that. And like, man, you, 
yeah, it's that dude. And he's like, he's always late to work. He's never working overtime. Like, how is he getting this chance? And I still don't have it. It's like, because he's not a captain yet. You've already got a full ride. Like, you're not getting off the boat. Like, we need you to run the boat as a captain. So they were still kind of hesitant. And then um, in 2010 or 11, we needed a second one. And Moran ended up. So in 2007, I'll get to that too, I guess. 2007, Moran Towing of uh, New Canaan, Connecticut, bought River Parish's company, Incorporated. So it went from Rivco to Moran, New Orleans in uh, late 07. So we were all in the Moran system when the, the new boat started showing up. And there's such a demand for a, a second boat. There were two boats built and delivered out of Alabama. Uh, first was the Captain Jimmy T and the second was the Shiny V Moran. And uh, they had gone through all the people they thought they were going to have for the Z-Drive operators. And the um, kind of like, I don't want to say last minute, but sort of last minute, they asked if I wanted to train again. And uh, when the second boat was delivered, I was I was the first captain on it, second captain on it, technically. So I got to run the tractor tugs. She ended up shifting port. She went to Port Arthur about a year later, and they ended up uh, chartering a tugboat from another company uh, called the Gasparilla, which is a fantastic boat to play with, too. Uh, so I ended up on the Gasparilla for about a year, maybe eight months before she had went off charter. And um, <clears throat> ran a uh, conventional boat, a twin screw called the Greg Turacamo from 2011 to 15, 14, 15, about three and a half years, four years on that boat uh, until the second tractor tug came back, until the Shiny V came back to us. And then um, did all the, a lot of good work. We used to do a lot of work at Marathon Garyville when the when the second boat first showed up. When the first boat got here, when Jimmy got here, we were doing a ton of work at Garyville. And um, we ended up with a contract for the container ships down down downtown New Orleans in uh, Napoleon and Nashville Avenue. So they had to shift the tractor tug downriver to do the container ships. And uh, that's when they made the effort to get the second one back. And uh, we used to do a lot of running on the boat. The, they 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 tried to split them up so they weren't always stuck on the same job every day, the same two boats. So they're trying to utilize the asset for the other group of pilots upriver and stuff like that. And um, we did a lot of running, but it was really good. We, we covered so much territory every week. We ran miles and miles every week uh, just to keep up with the work. Um, and in uh, 2016, spring of 2016, um, Moran was going to realign some assets for the port of Miami. Uh, they went through a port uh, improvement project. They, they deepened the ship channel and all this other cool stuff they had done. So the pilots were really eager to start bringing in bigger ships, but they put a press on the tugboat companies that they needed bigger and better tugboats. And uh, Moran decided to send two of the most beautiful tugboats I've ever been on. Uh, down there, and they were looking for operators um, specifically not to mess up what was happening. So they went through a, a list of operators and their skill sets. And I got a phone call from up north. And they asked, like, look, man, we're going over this list of people, and 
your list, your name is always like third on the list every time. And we know it's a big ask, but would you be willing to help us out and go to Miami and run one of these boats for us so we can, you know, do it all properly and safely? So I did that for three years, which was awesome. Um, the Miami pilots are a great group of pilots. That's it's a pretty at the time it was a pretty small group of pilots, and we would have meetings with them about every two months, which to me was brand new and totally unique. Um, it's over here on the Mississippi River. It, it's I won't say unheard of, but it's probably unheard of for three tugboat captains and like eight pilots to sit down and talk about what works and what doesn't work. And um, how can we, how can we do this, you know, either more efficiently or safer. And it was excellent, excellent conversations with the pilots. And one of the pilots, we had done a job, um, this, the, the expansion of the Panama Canal had a lot to do with everything that Miami was working on, like as a port. <clears throat> and one of the first ships to come through the new locks, 1200 feet, like 1189 by like 165, like this giant, giant ship. Uh, is the Japanese container ship carrier uh, company. So they came through and they were the first one to come in and they came in at like 12 meters of draft and it's the first time to make sure it all fit and this ultra large container carrier and all this stuff and is like a dockside, almost like a, parade man they had like streamers and balloons and the, the captain got off and he signed like a momentum of understanding between the ship company and the port of miami and the pilots were all there and like man you guys need to come up you need to come up here so we tied the boats off and they let us go they let the they let the trash in in the gate so to speak so we got to hang out with some pilots and some local politicians and the ship captain and we we're talking to one of the pilots and this is what kind of what instigated the pilot meetings. We were talking to the pilots, you know, and, and um, he was a senior pilot at the time. And he was introducing us to some of the other folks and other pilots and stuff. And he turned around and was like, man, this is amazing that Moran went through all the effort to send these boats and, and you guys here to help us do this the right way. Now we just need to learn how to use these tugs. Like that was like, that was, and he, when he said it, it wasn't like, he wasn't selling himself short. It is. It was just a, a just a, a very candid admission of like, man, we've we've never seen things like this. So we asked if we if you want to talk about it, and they they started sending their junior pilots out to ride with us while we're doing jobs, and then they asked us to go ride with senior pilots on the ships coming in to watch with it, how they utilize the tugs, and um, it was a really awesome chain of communication, and um, it kept. It kept a lot of what would have what they call, I guess, near misses. You know, it kept near misses super low because we had developed uh, on a ship. When a pilot gets on a ship, they'll they'll talk to the ship's master and they ask him all the particulars. You know, draft. You know, revolutions at dead slow speed and dead slow stuff like that. And there's a, a card in the window where the pilot is called a, a pilot card. Actually, when they do this, it's called the master pilot exchange, and they just call it the MPX. So we started doing what they call a TPX. We, we, we created this little term, a tug pilot exchange. So on the way out to meet the ship, we would ask him, you know, what's your intended speed through the turn? What are the, what are the, what are the ratings, the tonnage ratings on the deck fittings? And we do this whole thing and we came up with that. And we were the, I would say probably not the only one doing it, but it was semi-formalized. 
And it got to where they were offering the information as soon as they would call the boats. We'd already be underway. They like asked for the first boat. It's like, yeah, you know, the George would be first tug out. It's like, all right, when you get here, George, we'll be doing 10 and a half, and we've got a 120-ton bit to work with. Like, man, thank you so much. We'll see you in 10 minutes. So it 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 shaped up all the uh, it, it eliminated all the X's in the equations pretty quick. So we were able to do like really, really good work with those guys. And uh so we did that. I did that for, for three years in Miami. Um, met two more people that I still talk to quite regular, quite regularly. Um, but I consider them two of the most valuable people in my in my circles. Um, one was my mate, one was my deckhand. And uh like we the deckhand, I talk to him probably every day. And then uh, the mate, she and I, we speak probably once every month or three weeks. We still keep in touch. And uh, that was pretty awesome. The, the, the group of people that ended up there when they were trying to do this reformatting, refitting for Miami was, the people were great. Like there's, there's no getting around it. The, the, the people that they had chose were, were like absolutely some of the, the exact perfect people to be there at the right time. And that helped a lot too. So that was great. And then in, oh my goodness, June or July of 2018, my family, I was at work. My family had taken my wife, my daughter, and my mother. My mother-in-law had taken a trip to Florida. Uh, my daughter was doing a, uh, she's on a like a competitive studio dance team. And they were doing their nationals in Pensacola and my mother was on the trip and she got sick and uh she ended up passing away before we could get her home <clears throat> and I decided I, I didn't want to be that far away from the family so I transferred back to uh Louisiana and now I work in Cameron down in uh there's an LNG facility that we have under contract uh, on the Calcasieu River well, I can say your eyes sparkled a little bit when you mentioned the Ascension and the Gasparilla. Tell me about those two boats. So the Ascension, like I said, she was built in like 1918, Camden Yards, I think, which is in New Jersey. Um, her build plate was on the on the bow forever. And it's probably in this office somewhere if I had, could, could go take a look. Um, she was a um, very historic boat. She ended up in New Orleans in... I want to say the 40s, the company called Whiteman. And she had a, uh, a steam boiler. She was a steam-powered, steam-driven tug. And um, when Whiteman had it, they did the first conversion, I think, from steam to diesel. And then she ended up, uh, when Whiteman sort of dissolved, press and towing, ended up with the boat. She was the Shannon Smith. And then uh, the, river, river, the, the, the family from River Parishes acquired the tug and renamed it the Ascension. And it was uh, her her history from the 40s and 50s up until when I got on it. It was like a, a 40 or 50 year sort of legacy of being a very dependable and, and great boat for the pilots. And it was kind of neat to be part of that, to, to maintain her reputation with, regardless of who's in the wheelhouse, that that boat was always, it was fast, it was strong, it was ready to go. and. Um, she she handled so well. She was such an overbuilt tug. Like it was a riveted hull. Like it was just it was wild. It was just it was just a huge 
heavy boat and it handled so well for ship work. Um, it didn't really get affected by pressure gradients off the side of the ship and stuff like that. And it was one of the easiest boats to teach someone new with because she was so stable. <clears throat> and it was just a historic boat. Um, you know, when I started out in 91, the guys, the captains that were running it, the engineers that were on it were like the go-to guys. That was like, you know, you did the hard work and put you on the good boat kind of thing. So it was always like uh, a, a golden ring to to reach for. And by the time I got back in, in 2004, well, I guess in 97 and in 2004, you know, she was at the end of her life cycle. Like, you know, 2,000 horsepower wasn't going to be enough ever again. Single screws weren't ever going to be built again. Um, and she she started having some, some uh issues like uh we'd have trouble with uh shaft bearing just constantly wearing out she was just she was just starting to wear out from the inside out and um then the gasparilla that was a, a boat chart actually she was chartered from miami before she came to new orleans because they were trying to get the 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 type of boat this the the, the power that they wanted for the pilot so they measure they measure the z drive the tractor tugs are they, the the sellable factor is what they call bollard pull. So they'll, they'll have a pull test, certification test. They put a, a static line out and they pull. I think it's a three hour average. And then they, they flip the boat around. So they back into the line full power for like two or three hours. They flip the boat around and they pull on the line for two or three hours. And they give an average tension that it pulls. And that's called a bollard rating, a bollard pull rating. And um, the Gasparilla was a 70-ton boat. That's what she pulled, 70 tons, static baller pull. So the pilots were saying that the, the first-generation tractors that were available to Miranda at the time, they were requiring more power. And uh, for the, the easiest, the, the quickest, most efficient way to do it was to charter a tug from somebody else in, in, the, in the window of opportunity because to build your own boat would take at least a year. So they, they put a bare boat charter on this tug. And while she was in Miami, the, the first 70 or 80 ton tug from Moran was available. So they swapped it out. So the new boat, Moran boat went to Miami and the Gasparilla came to New Orleans to finish her charter because she was going back to her company of origin and they were gonna put it in Port Arthur, Texas anyway. So we, we just kept it for about five or six months before she finished up and went to Texas. And that boat was the first um, boat I got to operate as a captain with Caterpillar main engines. And uh, she had a huge, um, for a, a tugboat in general, they were giant. They, they were like almost 11 foot propellers and they were in nozzles and they're on Z drives. It, was, it moved so much water when it was underway. It, it, to this day, I think it may have still been the strongest boat I've ever worked on. Um, it was supposedly a 70-ton boat, but, man, it, it acted like 100 tons. It, it was such a strong – everything was perfect. The, the uh, coincidental, engineered, intentionally, I don't know. But from the ease of maintenance for the engineers to how powerful the boat was for us and for the pilots, she was quiet super stable um she was she was just a great boat to be on fantastic tug um built in uh i 
pretty sure Eastern Shipyard in Panama City, they build almost all of them. For a while, they were building almost all of them that style, that that design. But I'm not definite, but I'm pretty sure that's where she was built. And uh, so, yeah, we had her for, like I said, about five or six months. And then she went out to uh, back to her owners in uh, Port Arthur, Texas. And what was the other boat? I guess the the shiny, the shiny boomerang came back after that, I guess. Something like that. Well, I guess what's the craziest thing you've ever seen happen out there? Oh man, I was on. So I was the captain on the St. James, which is a conventional twin screw. And I didn't, I was, I was actually part of it. I didn't see it. I was actually part of it. This is, this is pretty wild. So we had a, a ship that was tied off on the east bank of the river in New Orleans. <clears throat> she was tied off starboard side too. And she's at like a repair yard. So they were going to take the ship out, flip it and press it back in port side too, which is a downriver landing for the ships. And uh, we had three tugs. It was the St. James, the St. Charles, and the St. John, all twin screw conventionals. And uh, the boat I was on had uh, intercon intercontinental towing winch towing machine on the stern. So the other two captains asked if I wanted to get on the hawser since I had the winch and the liner and all that stuff. So yeah, man, I'll do it, no problem. So we're it's crew change, and of course everything happens either the night before crew change or at crew change. So Wednesday morning, we're hustling to get our groceries on the boat. We get on the boat, and the pilots are already at the dock. So we're dropping lines and going across. And the other two guys, the other two captains are already making their way across. And they call back, say, hey, lad, do you mind if you get on the, on the hawser for us? I'm like, no, that's fine. So what we ended up having to do was get, they had to drop the stern line off the ship, and we had to get in behind the ship, almost on the dock. And we took our working line, and we, we shackled into the winch. And we drug the line all the way along the port side of our tug. We hung it outside the bulwarks on the tires, we draped it over on the tires, and we sent it up. So the idea was when the ship pulled off the dock and opened up, I was just going to shoot this gap between him and the dock and feed the line off on its own. And when it went tight, I'll be in a position to help pull him around. So the pilots, the first pilot was very, I think he was uncomfortable with the maneuver. And I, I don't know if it was um, something he's not familiar with doing or if it was his lack of trust or faith in the tugboats he was assigned or whatever it was. But he was very apprehensive. You can hear it in his voice. You can tell by the way he was giving commands. So we started feeding the line out. And he starts opening the dock, uh, the ship up off the dock, and we're shooting this gap. And everything's kind of going to plan so far. And as soon as the line goes tight, he tells me to start pulling forward. Like, well, when we use the line normally, it's on the bow of the tug, and we send it up, and we're usually backing on it. And a tug does 60 70% of its power, available power, when you work a stern. So I knew if I just dumped the throttles full ahead and pulled into that line, there's a chance we could part it. You don't want to part the line because then you're without, you know, you're not doing anything at all now and making the situation worse. So he's he's kind of pressing for me to get into those lines and start pulling. And uh, so I'm easing into it. He's like, man, are you full yet? It's like, not yet. He's like, I need you to get full. I need you to pull hard now. It's like, well, if I go hard and I part this line, then we're both out of, you know, shit out of luck pretty much. 
And uh, he's like, as soon as you, man, I, I need you to do it now. I'm like, all right, man, here we go. So I just, I just, I never stopped pulling, but it, it just wasn't fast enough for him. So I just ended up getting it all the way to the dashboard. The line's tight. Everything's good. Good tension. We're pulling, we're pulling, we're pulling. And he starts giving us directions, which way to pull the stern of the ship, you know, pull it towards the ferry land and come back to the cathedral, back to the ferry land. So we're, we're down at Algiers Point, trying to go up river a little bit. <clears throat> and, uh, the way the boat was handling to do that kind of work, like the way those boats are built, if you're going to tow something off your stern, it's usually for a, a, a distance. So you and whatever you're pulling are both making way and you, you can steer and you know, you'll have a little set and stuff like that. But when you're pulling full and you're not making much headway, the, all the, the, all the energies involved that, that move your pivot point to right where the, the winch is connected like literally the drum of the winch. So when I would give it some, like he'd tell me to turn to port, when I go to turn to port, the boat wouldn't come to port. The whole boat would just pivot to port and then drive over. So that reaction wasn't fast enough for him either. And about the third or fourth command he gave us, I had all my crew up because it was just one of those things like, man, we just got on anyway, nobody's in bed yet, but it's like, I want everybody in the wheelhouse ready. And about the fourth command he gave us, I looked over at my mate, my deckhand. I'm like, go secure every door, every door, get your life jackets ready. I, I, I'm not, I'm not vibing with this one right now. This is, this is, there's a high possibility of something going really wrong. So they ran down main deck and they secured all the hatches, like portholes, everything. And uh, they were coming back up. And uh, we were pulling on a slight angle to his, to my port, to his starboard. And he told me to bring it straight up the river. So I'm starting to bring the tug back around. And uh, all of a sudden, the bow of the tug just started rising and rising and rising. And I'm looking, and we're not making any headway. Then all of a sudden, the boat surges. And I'm like, oh, no. And I turn around and look, and the pilot started backing the ship's wheel. And he took all the load off my line once she stood up. And she she healed over at probably 25 or 30 degrees and like this really weird angle. So the first thing I did, I just took all the power off the port engine. And I tried to get the starboard engine to drive my bow back down. And as soon as we got the boat half-ass settled, I just steadied up on like probably about a third, maybe a half on both and started a slight right rudder and we're driving back out of that line. And I told my, my, my mate and my deckhand, the engineer, all of them, go cut it. Go, he's going to kill us. You got to cut this line. So they went out there and they broke it loose. And I called the pilot. I was like, man, so we part of the line. We're out of here. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, you got to stop back in the ship because the line's coming to you now. Like it was, it got out of hand so fast, so fast. When we got done, the, the, the captain that was on the other tugboat, he said he could see when the boat stood up and rolled, he can see our starboard propeller. Still, like we were still pulling on that line, but he can see the starboard propeller like almost two thirds out of the water. That was, that was the single wildest thing I've ever been involved in. Well, I'm glad uh, you didn't go under, man. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, Boy, he just threw my head a question, but uh, <laughs> now I lost it. It's a hell of a finish. Let's take it easy toward the end here. 
Any forecast on retirement? None. No, my um, uh, we have a, a daughter, only child. Our daughter, she's about to graduate high school in a couple of weeks, and she's going off to college. So I'll have at least four years of that <laughs> before I can retire. I I don't know what that even would be. I don't I don't know. I'm not I'm not like so. I have to say, the last couple of weeks listening to your show, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna mess up his last name, but I'm gonna say Boucher. Cohen Boucher. Cohen Bush. Yeah. Bush. All right. Uh, he might be my, my new favorite person on the entire planet after that interview you did with him. Uh, man, all, all of his stuff, man, the, the Cypress, the, the, the Gulf, the, all this time on the Port Allen, back to the Port Allen. Like that was a very interesting podcast. I enjoyed that one a lot. Um, but to, to like hear him talk about all that stuff, I've never had those kind of hobbies i've never been like i, I do play golf I, I like to you know cook and stuff like that but i don't i don't have a retirement plan I, I don't know what that would even feel like um hopefully i don't know if you've seen it some of the other social media stuff um just a month ago um uh, myself and another captain from port arthur texas we received uh an award from the company it's a, a, a brass bell award, like a ship's bell award for um, all the stuff we do as instructors and mentors. We do a lot of offsite training in simulators and campuses. And um, I'd, I'd like to find a way to turn that into a new trajectory from, from my career. I'd, I'd really like to focus on uh, teaching and instruction and mentorship. Uh, 32 years on a boat's a long time on a boat. And uh, yeah, it's a um, it's a great job. I, I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm 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 tired of missing out at home life. It's not the job that I'm tired of. Um, the the tractor tugs are a whole other thing now, and um, it's more akin to flying a helicopter than than driving a boat. And uh, that's a it's such a great such a unique skill. And um, I really enjoy teaching. I, I do still enjoy running the boats, but it's just uh, it's just been a long time away. So I'd, I'd like to find. Uh, I actually started um, back in uh, November, uh, late October. I created uh, an LLC, so I'm trying to trying to spin that off into something I can do, maybe as a retirement gig, as an instructor or a consultant. Well, I think that'll do it for my questions, Captain Royce. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot.